Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Where is God? Where can God be found? You know, religion, all the different religions of the world, they're all, in this respect, the same. It's all about a guru, a sage, a wise man, a prophet, a religious leader who comes into this world to tell you all the things that you have to do in order to find God. But the story of the Bible, the story of God's Word is the exact opposite. The story of the Bible isn't just about a prophet who comes into the world to tell you what you have to do in order to find God. The story of the Bible is about a God who comes into this world to find you. To do whatever it takes to win you back, to redeem you to do whatever it takes to welcome you back home and into his loving arms. The story of God's word is always about God coming down to his people to find them. We see this in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, human beings have rejected God. We've fallen into sin. And what does God do? He comes down. It says he walks in the garden in the cool of the day and he cries out to them, where are you? We see this in the burning bush, the story of Moses, and he learns the very name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am. God comes down in the tabernacle in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years, and God gave them instructions, this crude, primitive structure made out of wood and animal skins, but there God chose to manifest his presence coming down there in the very center of the Israelites for all of their wandering in the wilderness. God was there with them in the more permanent temple in Jerusalem, the very presence of God, his glory filling up what was called the Holy of Holies. And that same presence of God, the Word of God, the Word who was with God and the Word who was God, who then took on flesh and made his dwelling amongst us in that helpless baby in Bethlehem. God with us, Emmanuel, a God who comes down to find his people, to find you, a God who would die on the cross. He came into the world not to be served, but to serve, to serve you. His death, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne, and then it's a God who promises to return one day to this world. God will come down once again in all of his glory, with all of his love, and we will be with him forever. 
But until that day, where is God? Where can God be found? Well, God to this day continues to be a God who comes down to be with his people, to manifest himself, to incarnate himself in this world. Most of you here today, you look like people who enjoy online shopping. Whatever your website of choice might be, and you go online and a few clicks, click, 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 and for some places, just two days later, there it is, and the thing that you wanted, and it's in these little packages and little boxes, and they bring it right up to your door, and you take the package, you take the box, you go inside, and it's like a little mini Christmas. And you open up that package, you open up that box, and there it is. You know. In a similar kind of way, God comes to us in these packages, in these boxes that he delivers to us. And in the Lutheran church, this historically, the theological kind of jargon that we use is we call these the means of what? of grace, the means of grace, the means, the tools, the packages, the boxes by which God brings his very self, his presence. And wherever God is, his love is there. Wherever God is, his power is there. Wherever God is, hope is there. Hope for the future, but it's a hope from the future that can come into our lives even today. And that means of grace is God's word, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Next week, we're going to talk about baptism. In two weeks' time, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Today, our focus is on God's Word. That God comes to be with us in and through His Word. That's one of the packages, the boxes, by which He delivers Himself and the hope that we have. We saw this in some of our readings today, didn't we? Let's go over those real quick here. Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to start back up in verse 10 where it says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is speaking of the all-powerful Word of God, the same Word that spoke at creation and said, let there be light, and there was light. And then in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, we saw these words, words written to a church undergoing great persecution. But the author says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. The word of God is living 
and active. Do you think of the Word of God as living and active as you pick up your Bible and you start reading, and some of you have done this, you're, I'm going to read through the whole Bible, and you read the book of Genesis, and that's pretty good, that's pretty exciting, got some pretty amazing stories. Oh, in the book of Exodus, that's pretty exciting too. You got the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea, and then you get to the book of Leviticus. It's living and active. What does that mean? That means God, again, this is a container. This is the package. God puts his very presence, his spirit into these words. As I said in my Bible class, not just a few minutes ago, it's not like the Holy Spirit is over in the corner and the Holy Spirit says, you know, I'm kind of going to hang out in the corner, but when he gets to verse five, I'm going to really zap him. The Holy Spirit's there in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Infused within every word, every page of the written word, of the spoken word, of the sung word. And says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Think of surgery. That God in his word can do surgery on our hearts and can transform us. Speaks to the deepest needs of our life. And then finally, Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus speaks of the Word. Now, Jesus is the Word of God. He's the personal Word manifested and fleshed. But he's also speaking of the proclaimed Word. He's speaking of the written Word, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus says that his Word is what? It is truth. It's true. Now, how can we be sure that the Old Testament, the New Testament, is true? That it's reliable? You know, there are a lot of other religions, and they say things that are very different from Christianity. Some religions say that Jesus is not the Son of God, and Christianity says Jesus is the Son of God. Can they possibly both be true? How do we know what is true? How do we know? Can we look at the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say that these are reliable? That's what I actually want to talk to you for the rest of this sermon is on the reliability of the Word of God. You know, the very first attack of Satan against God was an attack against his Word. Did God really say? And that is still how our enemy attacks us and attacks God is through the truthfulness of his Word. In the age of great skepticism in which we live, let's slow down just a little bit as we know that this is the truth. There is power here. But are there ways of thinking to go, you know what, we're not crazy. And that his word and these promises are true and it's reliable for us. There's a couple things for us to think through today. There's actually five things. Some of you say, five things? We're going to go through them fairly quickly, okay? <laughs> that the Bible, the written word of God is 
has a reliable origin, it has realistic content, it has honest portrayals of people and events, very importantly, it contains vital and real answers to the biggest questions, and it has an absolutely and utterly unique message in the gospel. Let's start, first of all, this reliable origin. There are a lot of other holy books. There are a lot of other scriptures there are a lot of other books which also claim to be the Word of God, just like the Bible claims to be the Word of God. I think if we look at how the Bible was put together, where it came from, its origin, how it originated, in contrast to some of the others, and we lay it out and say, which one is more likely to be reliable and true? This is what I mean, and I've shared this with you before, but it's a good reminder. First of all, let's take the Quran. We have some of our Muslim friends and neighbors. The Quran was written by one man, and his name was what? Muhammad. And he said he received a vision from the angel Gabriel, which gave him these words, and he articulated it was all written down. One man goes away and says, here it is, here's the word of God, believe it. One man. And there's the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or commonly referred to as the Mormon Church. In the Book of Mormon, we have some of our Mormon neighbors and friends. And how was the Book of Mormon, a New Testament of Jesus Christ, produced? It was one man who said he went into the woods, led by an angel, found some gold plates, had some special glasses to help him interpret it. He wrote it all down, and he came back, and he said, here it is. It is a whole new testament of Jesus Christ, one man. What about the Gospels in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, those are all written by a single person. But the story of the birth and the life and the ministry and the suffering and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, it isn't just something that happened to, to one person who went away and wrote it all down and said, this is true. This is something, these events took place within a whole community of people who were witnesses to these things. Do you remember, Pastor Nate talked about this on Easter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is laying out all the different people who were eyewitnesses of Christ. And at one point, he says this outrageous claim. He says that, and more than how many of the brothers saw Jesus at one time? How many? 500 of the brothers. Now, they didn't mention the women or children. Could have been a 1,000 or more people. He says were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ all at the same time. And he had the audacity to say, most of whom are still alive at the time that Paul was writing that letter, which was about 15 or 20 years after the resurrection within the lifetime of the people who were there. Amazing. It isn't just something that happened. One person went away and said, I'm going to write it all down. Okay, here's the word of God. It was something that was witnessed by thousands of people. There were a million people in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. Remember the sky turned dark at noon, the sun stopped shining, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. There were earthquakes throughout the land. People even came out of their graves. There were thousands upon thousands of people who witnessed that and the empty tomb. So if you just lay out how 
the Bible and especially the Gospels were written in comparison to some of these other books written by one person, this is it, I swear, it's the word of God, or an entire thousands of people who witness these things. You can just say, which one is more likely to be reliable? It has a very reliable, let's not even talk about archaeology. For years and years, the scholars said there was no King David. He was a mythological, you know, kind of a King Arthur type of hero. No King David. And then in 1996, doggone it, they find King David inscribed in stone. Anyway, let's move on. Realistic content. What do I mean by that? It means that when you read the historical narratives, the stories of the Bible, People can say they're a mythology. People can say they developed over hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. They're legends. They're not written like a legend. Let me give you one of my favorite examples from John chapter 21. Jesus is resurrected. He's appeared to his disciples. They're up in Galilee. They've decided to go fishing. Jesus is on the beach. He's got a little fire. And he goes, cast your net on the other side. See how you do. And they cast the net on the other side. They start to get this huge catch of fish. Peter all of a sudden realizes that it's Jesus. He jumps in the water and swims to the shore. And then it says that the other disciples came in the boat because they were sensible. It says, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. About a hundred yards off. This isn't how legends or mythology is written. This is eyewitness account written down. About a hundred yards off. Then it goes on to say this. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. You see that? Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Not 152, not 154, 153 large fish. This isn't how, this is how maybe modern-day fiction is written. You could believe they created modern-day fiction 2,000 years before it was created, it's not written like a legend. 153 fish. You know, the Gospel of Mark contains this wonderful little, little detail. They're in the storm. Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat. And it says he laid his head on a cushion. These little details. Because it has very realistic content. It's not legend or myth. And then thirdly, there's honest portrayals. of people in the gospel. Really honest, think about it. There's Saint Peter, Saint Paul. These are the founders, these are the two number one big leaders of the church. Let's talk about Peter. How do the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how is Peter portrayed in the gospels? Like a bonehead. He is the one always spouting off at the mouth. He's the one who's always acting before he's thinking. And you remember, this is the leader of the Christian church. At the end of Christ's life, he does what? He denies him three times. He even calls down a curse on himself, and it says essentially, may I be damned to hell if I have anything to do or if I know this Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, if they are making all of this up, if this isn't reliable and true, and Peter's there like, okay, let's come up with a story about Jesus and how he's the son of God and he rose from the dead even though we're making it all up. And they go, hey, Peter, look what we wrote about you. Could you lighten up on the calling down curses on myself uh, part of that? Why would, it's a very honest portrayal. If they're making it up, it doesn't make sense. You know, St. Paul, what do we know about him? Book of Acts says he breathed out murderous threats. He persecuted the church. He was a murderer. So Paul gets together. Hey, let's make up a fake religion and write some fake things down. He's going he's to describe himself as a persecutor and a murderer? It's just this very honest, very real. And you know, women, at the at, at honest portrayal of events too, women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them say women were the first eyewitnesses. My daughter just went, yeah, girl power. <laughs> Unfortunately, what do we know about the first century and girl power and the opinion of women and their test ability to even give testimony in a court of law? It was considered unreliable in the first century. In fact, this was something that was used to attack Christianity. Women were the eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, the angels, the first ones to see Jesus alive again. And there was a man by the name of Celsus in the second century who was writing an attack against Christianity, and he said this, after his death, there are those who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead, but who saw this? Quote, a hysterical female. Celsus said it, I didn't say it. A hysterical fear. We know how they are. They can't be trusted. So again, they're making all of this up. Oh yeah, his tomb was empty. We saw him alive again. And they're writing down something that was an embarrassment to the early church and used to attack them. Why are they doing it? Because they're writing down what happened. It's very honest. It's very honest. Does this prove it? Of course not. But you're not crazy to believe and trust in the Bible. Let's move on. Vital answers. The Word of God contains real and vital answers to the biggest questions of life. Questions of where did we come from and where are we going and why are we here and who am I? What does the secular world, what is the answers? Where did we come from? We came out of nothing. Where are we going? We're going to nothing. You are the product simply of accident and chance. Your life ultimately is meaningless. You came out of nothing. Where are we going? Well, the sun will go supernova and everything's over. You're going to nothing. Is it any surprise as more people believe this and think this and it's taught in our schools that people are beginning to feel like nothing? What does the Bible say? It says that we came, where did we come from? You were made in the image of God. You are holy. Human life is sacred. Your life is matters. Where are we going? A new heavens and a new earth, this broken world, no more racism, no more injustice, no more war, no more poverty, and all of creation restored. And why are we here? To glorify God and enjoy him forever and to be a part of this wonderful plan of restoring all of the broken world. And who are you? You are one that is so valuable to this awesome God that he would suffer and die for you. I think life 
is like a book with half the pages ripped out. We try to make sense of our lives, but we just don't have it all. And the word of God, the Old and New Testament, it's like, it's like going up into the attic and finding all of the lost pages. And you can start to make sense of who you are and why you're here. And finally, the utterly, it just truly is a unique message. Religion says, religion is all about a wise man, a prophet who comes into the world and tells you all the things that you have to do in order to somehow find God. But the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of God's word is the exact opposite. It is all about God who comes down into this world to find you and to save you. All the way back in the book of Genesis, going to Adam and Eve, where are you? We saw that in the burning bush and in the tabernacle and in the temple and in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh who suffered and died for you and rose again and conquer death in the grave and promises to come back to this world one day and until he comes back where is God where can you find him he is exactly where he promises he will be in the bread and the wine that you will receive his very body and blood and he is in every page of his holy and inspired, living and active and powerful and reliable word. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.